Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And today is the post-read episode for Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky, yet another Adrian in our midst. Absolutely psyched for this one. Right. So if you haven't listened to the podcast before, what we normally do is we take a book, we do two episodes about it, a pre-read episode without spoilers, giving you context, and the post-read episode, which is an in-depth discussion full of spoilers on the book. So from here on out, you know, you've been warned. Um, This month, like we said, is uh, Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky, and you can listen to our pre-read episode, which was the the last episode that we published, I'm pretty sure. So uh, we sometimes do bonus episodes, stuff like that. Uh, Yeah, you should go listen to our pre-read episode, because that was a lot of fun. Um, But we just finished the book. Both of us actually finished the book today. What did you think of it? Loved it. Yeah, it was good. It was very good. I'm pumped to talk about this book because I really loved it. And I had never even heard of it before this month. So it oh, was really? a really fun surprise. Yeah. Oh, I actually didn't realize that. Um, yeah, I had heard of it when it won the... because it So it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. You know, we get into all this kind of context in the in the pre-read episode. Um, but it won an award and that's how I heard about it when it came out because I had not heard about it before, before it won. And it's like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. And then... It's one of these books that has constantly come up and people have told me to pick it up. And I'm always like, oh, okay, but I want to read this instead. Um, so finally did it. Yeah. Yeah. Glad I so did. We, we talk a little bit more about the context in the pre-read, but um, just to kind of go through really quickly. Um, actually, well, first we should say what, you know, did you like it? Oh, yeah, I, I did. I really did. It was um, I think we'll get into this a little bit. There are parts that were stronger than others, some of which had to do with, you know, it's very hard science fiction, which is not something we've read before on the podcast. So parts that had to do with that parts that had to do with just the story itself and its structure. But um, yeah, overall, like very positive. Really, really glad I read it. Yeah, I think um, I was just mentioning this briefly before we started recording. But to me, this was a book that I really had a lot of fun with, but then mm-hmm. the end, the ending took it up another level for me. I loved the ending uh, to the point where I, I sort of, it's like going from liking to loving the book. That's cool. So that's, that's kind cool. of my... I feel like I'm still processing the ending a little bit and I'm not sure if I loved it or was like terrified of it and like what either thing <laughs> So I will say it is as, as, uh, as my partner, as my partner put it, is it is the future liberals want. <laughs> Indeed. Which, um, if you have read the book, I hope you will find as funny as I did when I heard her say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, just before we go too deep, too, because so, um, for I think for this episode, we're really just gonna like full steam ahead onto themes. We're going to talk not like through the, sometimes we talk through the plot and go plot by by plot beat. This time we're not going to do that because it's a fairly long, but I mean, it's like 600 pages. Um, So before we did that, I just want to do like content warning up front, which I think the big one, which we probably should have mentioned in the previous one, which is like, if you have arachnophobia, this is, we're going to talk about spiders a lot. Or just insects in general. I mean, there's a lot of ants, ants stuff too. Yeah. I think, I think if, if creepy crawly things, really give you the willies the willies then i would yeah. just be aware <laughs> going into this yeah we're gonna be talking would, about yeah that. it's i mean i actually had a long discussion with somebody last night um about this and um they were saying to me we were kind of going back and forth about whether this person would like this book or not mm-hmm. uh normally i would say she would but just based on the kind of the insects and arachnids in the book and the very you know 
occasionally graphic descriptions of what they're doing and mm-hmm. them fighting and them doing other things, mating, you know, all kinds of stuff. Right. Yeah. She and for not. me personally, like I don't have that like i don't mind bugs or uh, spiders especially i don't mind i probably mind bugs a little bit more but so it was definitely like part way through reading it i got to i forget there's a there's a character towards the end who like has arachnophobia mm-hmm. essentially and like r- reading her responses to the spiders i was like oh oh yeah some people might not like this book because of that like i can see people getting freaked yeah. out in a way that just doesn't register you know beyond that there's all the typical kind of like um you know, I guess there are some like cult like elements in it and there's all the typical like kind of like sci-fi violence, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, I think on screen it would be an R rated for violence kind of book, but it's, it's all yeah. within the typical realm of, of that sort of thing. Um, yeah, there are, there are associated with the insects. There is a certain amount, I would say of like, at least gesturing in the direction of some horror stuff. Yeah. Um, especially at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, when they interact with humans, but <laughs> right, right. But a lot of that is, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll get into it. So anyway, yeah. do we always like to give those kind of like warnings up front? I mean, you know, probably if you've here, you've already read the book, but even if you haven't, you know, I know people listen to our post reads without having read the book. We'll, we'll be talking about spideys, about creepy crawlers. Um, yeah. So, I, uh, you know, I think one of the things that, would be good to start is kind of talking about the character and plotting and structure of the book. I think that's sort of like a, an easy way to kind of start and then, and then go talk more about the specifics of the content of the book from there. Because um, I know you wanted to talk about like characters and hard science fiction. And I had some thoughts about the structure. So I'll just start with this. Like when I was reading it, I found myself really compelled by the first third maybe even the first half kind of bored a little bit in the middle. And then the like last third, it really picked up for me again and I got really into it again, but I definitely felt myself like lag towards the middle of the novel. And some of that felt to me due to the way that it does or doesn't do character. And like the fact that like, you know, the, the way it kind of wrote its character. So I know you wanted to say some stuff about that too. So I thought I'd throw that over to you and then we can kind of like, you know, from your experience yeah. and my experience, kind of find a place in the middle. Uh, yeah, I think so. The character stuff is interesting to talk about. I mean, there's this classic idea that a lot of hard science fiction from the 50s, uh, a lot of your Asimov stories in particular, but, you know, other folks too, are are stories that were, and not just him, I don't want to pick on him, but he's a good example of this phenomenon. Um you know, there are, there are stories that are written, they are stories that are written with characters that are almost non-existent. They're like cardboard cutouts who exist to serve a kind of plot development that emphasizes ideas over people. So the robot stories by Asimov are like this. The foundation is like this. Foundation is, you know, is an interesting book to talk about in the context of this book in particular, actually, which I wanted to bring up a little bit just because of the time scale and the multiple generations. And Right. Well, and um, that book was a, in particular like a fixer-upper novel. And this book is not a mm-hmm. fixer-upper novel, but yeah. shares structure with fixer-upper novels, which yeah. I found really interesting. One of the things that is interesting about stories that don't emphasize character so first i'll say right off the bat my bias is is is, my bias you know personally is i think that a story that doesn't emphasize character can work Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. i think that 
there's no real hard and fast rule that makes sense to me that I've ever heard, um, you know, that applies when it comes to writing characters and stories. I, you know, I think, um, a great example, actually, to me, this is almost like a totally separate discussion, but just as a quick aside, myth, very often, a lot of like old stories or just so stories right. don't really have characters right. in, the, in the way that we're familiar with characters. The idea of a character as we know it is, a, is in, in some ways, you know, from a certain perspective, a very modern thing, mm-hmm. or at least a, you know, relatively modern thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the idea that, oh, that's a necessary ingredient for a story is a little bit doesn't quite make sense to me. It never has. So, OK, right. so in the context well, let me, of this let book, me respond really oh, quickly. Yeah. Just uh, I, I think I think I agree with you in concept, but my own personal bias, which is probably evident from the books that we've chosen here, is towards character that like, yeah, sure, yeah. story without character can work. And weirdly enough, my own short fiction when I write short fiction almost never has characters It tends much more towards the myth or the hard sci-fi or this kind of like characterless type of fiction. But I, um, I think I just generally prefer to read about characters. Yeah. And that's a totally, yeah. And I think a lot of people are like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I will also say this as a, another quick thing. I think it's not the case that hard SF in general has any kind of structural bias against character driven stories. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's this idea that comes from the the very popular stuff from the fifties, but and from the pulps. The pulps very often don't have much in the way of character. Right, right. But then you've got, you know, on the other hand, Jules Verne, I think, has some very strong characters. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. you've got uh, you know, Frankenstein is not hard science fiction, but there are a lot of Frankenstein stories um that are, you know, around the same time. There, there's there's various strands of harder science fiction that have existed for a long time that don't involve um that that have that very obviously as soon as you think of them don't don't have any kind of particular need to not have strong characters and and actually kind of rely on character a lot they rely on you know a hubris journey Mm -hmm. or the flip of a hubris journey or you know but anyway okay that's just an aside we could have a long discussion about that and maybe we will but uh, just to make my original point really quickly (laughs) if that's you're good you're good maybe it's not um the uh one of the weird and interesting things about stories that don't emphasize character to me is that it can be very hard to tell where they're going like a lot of the sense that we often get when we're reading a story of oh what i know i can totally tell what's going to happen next comes from a sense that there's a relatively small combinatorial universe of you know places that this character can progress to right of like character and, journeys and yeah. we think of archetypes in terms of those character journeys yeah and um when the story is sort of makes it clear to you early on that it's not about any one small set of people or even if it is doesn't care about them in the same way that a more psychologically or character driven story would then all of a sudden, you know, you feel like you might not have the same purchase on it. And some people like that and some people don't. I I think it can work really well. In this book, I think, did it very well. Yep. Um, I was guessing up to the last page what was going to exactly. happen. I mean, I, I, was, yeah. I, I was constantly reading it. I'm like, you know, like... 95%, 97%, 98%. Like, oh, how's he 99%? How's he going to tie this all together? Um, and it yeah. does tie together really nicely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, I think actually that's a really good point that not having the strong kind of like psychological characterizations, character study 
just makes it like almost more easy to believe that like, Oh, everyone's going to get wiped out potentially. Or like that, that like more easy to believe that like something might happen that I just like don't predict because it's not Mm -hmm. based on what the characters are doing necessarily. There's like outside forces involved. Um, yeah. One thing that might be worth talking about a little bit to just, uh, make this discussion a little bit more concrete is the spider characters and the use of these, um, you know, kind of like, almost like lineage names for the the spiders like you know fabian and portia and bianca and uh there was there was one other starts with a v that i'm blanking on um that viola yeah viola showed up like less than those other three um but like you know that was a really interesting way of you know tying the spiders to each other even as you see generations of spiders kind of over time and you, you get these stories that are like very separate from each other but still giving you this sense of like oh you know And there's also kind of in-story reasons for it where like, sure, they're very different. And like one Bianca might be totally different from another Bianca, but they do actually share a lineage with each other and they share each other's memories even because of this like understanding as it is inside of the, the novel. Why don't we talk a little bit more about spiders in particular? Because I know, Adrian, you had a lot of things that you wanted to discuss relating to how Spider World is uh, yeah, described well, and Yeah, some well, some of it, I think, is going to go really far away from the talk of... Um really far away from the talk of the structure generally. So I kind of wanted to talk about the structure a little bit more and the like the different forms of like what character means in this novel. Um, because there's, you know, so so this was part of just just thinking about like why in the middle of the novel I felt like I checked out a little bit before coming back at it. Um, and it was really this feeling of particularly um, the characters on the ship you know, we're not very well realized. Like, like it's not really a psychological inspection of what being on a generation ship does to you. Like it's much more interested in the story of the ship as a whole. And the characters are kind of like different eyes that you get to see that story from. And in particularly there's the one main character that you see that story from, um, Holston, Holston Holston M last name. Uh, I'm going to butcher all the names in this. Um, you know, uh, but, you know, I realized partway through that he, you know, there are like, like reasons that are legitimate that he's like a character without a whole lot of agency because of his like place on the ship. And he, you know, is sort of this like character that can tie us both to like our own time and also this far future time because of his status as a historian. Um, but also that, like he, there was just like, he felt in certain ways, like a, like a video game character, like Gordon Friedman or something like that, the half-life <laughs> where, where like, you know, he really wasn't there to, he was there specifically as an audience surrogate and he had very little personality or like character to, to himself as a character. Um, and there were points in the story where that, you know, I think this is like really my only legitimate criticism of the novel. So I, you know, feel bad starting starting off with that. But it was this kind of thing of like, you know, I read this novel with this kind of like wave of enthusiasm that started really high, dipped, and then like went back even to higher than it had begun. So it ended on a really high note. Um, but just this kind of thinking through this feeling towards the middle of like, as some of the more character, like, you know, stuff happens on the ship in the middle around the like cult that, um, that, uh, Guyan, yeah, um, builds up. Like, that, that stuff I found myself being like, oh, well, all of a sudden you're telling this more character centric story on the ship, but because none of these characters have been built up, all of a sudden I'm actually not really interested in the character centric story at all. Like, I'm not actually that interested in Holston's 
personal plights in any way because he doesn't feel like a character to me. I'm much more interested in the stuff that is about how the ship survives and how people work together or not. Um, you know, and so I th- you wanted more uh, at that point in particular, but maybe at other points too. You wanted more details about the people on the ship, like. Or almost less, actually. It's almost this thing of, like, when the when the novel tried to be character study, because that wasn't the major focus of it, it just felt like, oh, I'm actually not interested that much in the character study. Like, they're not real characters, so, like, let them just be archetypes and tell a larger story instead of, like, try to also do the really personal character study thing. That's really interesting. I, I didn't quite have the same reaction to any of that. Any of that. I, I quite enjoyed the book throughout, and it I think... Um, I think the thing that happened, the the way that I would describe how my enthusiasm kind of like ebbed and flowed over the course of reading it was, is to say that it's a book that's, you know, structured as we've hinted in some ways, you know, like a a classic foundation style civilization story, but it's the story of two separate civilizations, a Mm -hmm. human post-apocalyptic civilization that's trying to like find purchase in a you know, galaxy trying to survive. Um, yeah. And a spider civilization that's growing up um, at an accelerated rate due to some, you right. know, uplift nanovirus. I mean, it's the like origin of one civilization and the like end of another, like told in parallel. Yeah. And, you know, so I kind of wasn't ever expecting much in the way. So, okay. For, first of all, I wasn't ever expecting much in the way, you know, of character. And I and I wasn't disappointed. If, same, if same. I had been, if I had been, I can imagine I would have had a different reaction. If I had been expecting Holston to to really, you know, change in any way, which he doesn't really. Right. I don't think well, any no, of them do. And that's why um, I think I don't actually mind the lack of, like, the lack of character was totally fine yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, that's one thing. So, so another thing is, uh, to me, like I would describe the ebbing and flowing as, you know, there are these different sections of the book that deal with different time periods that mm-hmm. are relatively isolated from one another. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of, for me, there was very much like, oh, in when we get to a new section, I, I need to get back into it. There, there's a yeah. there's a kind of a ramp up in each within each section that corresponds to the to the the plot of each section being relatively. Uh, or at least somewhat isolated from the plot of other sub- sections. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was kind of something I had to deal with as I was reading it. And so there would be periods where my enthusiasm would 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 kind of fall down a little, but it was a lot to do with, you know, you know, some books you have this issue where you get to uh, a new chapter and the beginning of a new chapter drags a little. That's yeah. almost kind of how I would describe it. Yeah. It's not so much a character thing as just a structure thing. Um, right. Cause, cause the character thing is, uh, you know, even in the parts of the book that were very tense and driving narrative narratively, um, you know, it, the, the, the level of characterization was similarly low. And so I, I kind of totally. see that as, as unrelated right. mostly, well, but, and maybe, you know, maybe some of this is that like, I actually, one thing I looked forward to at the beginning of every chapter was how Holston was going to wake up and, like, what he was going to remember. <laughs> and, like, like there I really like really, him. Right. I did, too. I mean, like, again, it's not to say that, like, the lack of characters is bad. I actually really enjoyed reading through his experience yeah. and having him as almost like a vehicle to see the story through. Yeah. Um, and one thing I thought was really fun was this idea of, like, every time he wakes up, there's, like, like, oftentimes 
you don't get maybe the last chunk. Like you don't ever see him right. going to sleep because right. he always kind of doesn't really remember that when he wakes up. And it, right. it almost reminded me of the movie Memento a little bit where it's like yeah. there you're going back in time and that's how you kind of forget what's happening. Whereas here it's just sort of like it just doesn't show you the like falling action of any given story. It just like hits the climax of the ship and then goes to the next story because the falling right. action like didn't stick in his head as well. Yeah. Um, essentially and i love yeah. i like that a lot i did too i actually so in terms of the human characters um you know so be, uh, partly because of these these sort of isolated like chunks that are generations removed from each other in this long you know multi-millennia mm. progress of this human arcship um you know you you have this situation where in some, like there's a, there's not a lot of and, and because of the lack of particular concern for characters there, you have the situation where there isn't a lot of parallelism between chunks. The chunks are very different from each other. And yeah. some of them are like almost feel like totally different genres from each other mm -hmm. from the human perspective. Some of them, I mean, when they're investigating the um when they're when they first arrive in the solar system where uh the spider planet is, um, you know, that's that feels so different. They're, all their technology is working and they're all like in good oh, health. Right, right. And it feels it feels like, you know, oh, OK, you know, this is this is the investigation of a new solar system. We're, we're intrepid explorers and we're just going to see how this is going. And every the command structure makes sense. And like, right. you know, every, our ship works. And, you know, and then when they get to um, the by the time they, when, when they when they try to colonize the planet and they have the mutiny, it's like, oh, OK, this is. This is another genre of hard SF. This yeah. is, you know, kind of a, a gritty, like, like dirty, cold equations kind of yeah. style thing going on with it, too. Of like, oh, we can't have this many people awake. We need people over here. We, you know, it's like yeah, yeah, all yeah. sort of like making very like logical decisions, but not right. involving people in them. Right. And then, you know, uh, after after that, it starts to it, they play with some other genres when they when they get to the other solar system they go to with the gray goo planet, I was just right. like, so, this is Solaris. It was, oh, it was a totally different, it was super Solaris-y. Um, I haven't read that. That whole section, it was very kind of, it was very, you know, first of all, the planet itself, if you're familiar with the story of Solaris, the idea of a planet, I won't say too much about yeah, it, yeah. but that planet, that planet is very, I think will will stick out. And second of all, the kind of the, all the stuff relating to the upload machine and the questions of morality that center around that and the questions of like the increase like at that point it, it starts to become the case that that pe there's like this lack of trust that creeps into the crew yeah after the mutiny and the psychological drama of them not trusting each other comes to the fore and that's also very very solaricy that kind of lack of right. trust and well and, and, and i like think who's really who and the thing i was responding to was that it all of a sudden like these psychological drama elements that really came to the forefront of the ship stories in the mm -hmm. middle because the characters were so weak those psychological drama elements just like carried less mm, weight less yeah. interest for me generally i think that's right i think you're right about that and i think it, that definitely is a missed opportunity um, mm -hmm. Solaris itself, you know, when it does this, it spends an enormous amount of time delving into the psychology of this one particular guy, right? And and some people that are related to him, and it does it does a better job as a result. It 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 gets a little further with that. Mm -hmm. It makes it gets some more tension, and it makes the stakes seem a little higher. And yeah, but then just to continue the thread, like in the section after that, I think it's the section after that when they're on their way 
when 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 uh, Holston is woken up by the Guyan cultists, it's like, oh my god, this is a this is a like a Mobius comic, a grim dark <laughs> yeah. far future fallen humanity comic or something right right it was super dark and very like and just to compare the 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 genre feel of that section with the first section of the book is you know is crazy like there's such right. a big difference there really is and those you know i i appreciated the constant difference even if some of those genres appeal to me more than others and i felt that some <laughs> were you know like written not even better than others just like i think it really does come down to a like i like certain kinds of stories especially told in this style more than i like other stories told in this style um yeah. but i think generally that like i really did enjoy the kind of almost episodic nature of it mm-hmm. you know one thing i was saying I, I i compared it to a um fixer-upper novel earlier which is you mm-hmm. right like this idea of like some writes a bunch of short stories in the same world and then kind of combines them usually with some sort of framing device to just form a single novel um and this had elements that felt like that it also had elements that reminded me of like a long-running tv show you Mm -hmm. know where like almost like each chapter or like each section you know of the like main seven sections were maybe a season and then each chapter within that were like an episode and you might get these like six episode arcs you know and then Mm -hmm. and those arcs tell one complete story and then you move on to the next one and it got me you know this more so than some of our other novels really got me thinking about like oh what would this look like in like a television or movie adaptation like how would this be adapted for some reason like that thing kept popping up in my head because it's such a like yeah so i i had that thought too and my first like reaction thought to that initial idea was they'll never do it oh with no spiders no they'll never no do way. it with spiders if they do it they'll make them not spiders <laughs> oh interesting interesting <laughs> because there's just no way people want to see that many spiders on tv Right. That's probably fair. At the same time, I don't know how it works without spiders. Outside of maybe being like octopuses or something like that. It would be it would be like worse, I think. I think the fact (laughs) I think the fact that it's spiders adds something. I agree. I agree. Because they're alien, right? And and the problem is that the more alien, the like less cuddly and like the harder to empathize to do with. right i mean i think the real answer is just like it's just never it's not a made like weirdly enough even as i'm saying it like the structure really reminded me of a long-running tv series and i kept coming back to that kind of paradigm while reading it it also just doesn't it doesn't feel like a book that works i for think adaptation. they will they will do foundation or nightfall long before they do this oh yeah for sure and i would love to see how they did foundation for example <laughs> who are they in this sentence <laughs> the you nebulous know, the, amazons the moguls, the moguls. <laughs> um cool so that was you know i think that that's a good discussion of the you know generally i really liked the structure i liked that for me it was something you know again my bias is towards character driven psychological science fiction which meant that i actually kind of enjoyed reading this partially because it wasn't because i don't actually read a whole lot of fiction that wasn't and reading something that was a really good example of doing something very different and like trying to do something very different like it wasn't it wasn't i've read some science fiction novels like names withheld that feel like they're trying to do characters and doing them poorly this was yeah. not that. This was never I, that feeling. To I, me. I don't want to. I, I also. I don't want to go too far in the direction of saying it had no characters because I do think that. 
what it did was successful as you're kind of like saying right now like I, sure I, there there are obviously characters in it it's not to say that it is purely like a myth where there's no character whatsoever there are human characters there are spider characters there's lots of them they're named they have different personalities that kind of thing the point is more that like it wasn't trying to be like a book about those characters so much it was a book about a lot of big ideas and a really long time scale and like a book that like wasn't focused on the characters, but used the characters to tell a story about other things, which I really appreciated. I think it's something that like, you know, I feel like I talk a lot on this podcast about like things that I think science fiction can do well and maybe even sometimes better than other genres. And I think that's one thing that sci-fi can do really well at times is like tell these, you know, stories about things that aren't characters, but are still really engaging stories. And this felt like a really good example of that. Yeah, I think that's all very true. Um, I also liked Lane and Holston. That was you know, so the, totally. the, the few the few kind of relationships and and people that we do get. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting because I even like Grien, like his his character arc of being like this, like like the weight of what he had yeah. to do, but yeah. it's also his own psychological story. He told himself yeah. and how that like broke him was fucking oh, yeah. cool. I, I, yeah, I was just gonna say the, 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 the characterization we do get is, is really is done very well. And in particular, the thing that's so good about it is, is there's a real unwillingness on the part of Tchaikovsky to take sides. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he t- he takes sides to some extent in 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 terms of like he has values. There are values that drive this narrative, and, and we'll get to that for sure. Mm. But he's really, he really, really, really wants to make sure that we see everybody, even if some of the characters don't want to see what some other characters are really about, right. or they are not just not about to like empathize with other characters, even if Lane and Guyan are just totally unwilling to see things from the other's point of view or like they have no interest in that then nonetheless we the audience will be treated to that no i totally i totally agree and that was one of the really you know cool parts of the book was that it did feel uh yeah not non-judgmental but also a little bit willing to just like put this stuff out there and see what happens with it it's like kind of thought experimental yeah well it's a book that cares very deeply about empathy um, mm-hmm. even if Guyan is a madman, he's a person who got there for, you know, understandable reasons. He's mm-hmm. been, you know, popping in and out of suspension way too much. He's way too old. He has way too much pressure on him and maybe wasn't the right guy for the job in the first place. Who knows? Right. Right. Or maybe like had certain key characteristics that worked really well for the job, but others that like, you know, no one had really thought about that <laughs> matter. Cause like. No one can know what the key characteristics for that job are going to be. It's a it's yeah. a one time gig. Yeah, and also it's like unclear if their command structure made any sense from the beginning as a <laughs> right. as a structure. <laughs> right, exactly. Um yeah, so so do we want to talk about the spiders a little bit cuz I oh, I yeah. love oh, yeah. This is the, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the like ship kind of stories there and the spider stories are also, you know, both not parallel to each other and also not parallel to the ship stories. Like they're Mm -hmm. their own very different Mm -hmm. kind of thing going on, which is both that, you know, like I said, it's the beginning of a civilization instead of the end. 
but also just they're fucking spiders. It's like bug stories. Um, it's so cool. You know, I love it. And it's interesting because it fits within this kind of genre of like fantasy story that is, you know, stories told from the perspective of animals. And I'm thinking particularly the white bone, um, that bees novel, the, the, all Laney Polly, I think it was her name. I'll, I'll put all of these in the, in the description, um, the, the, the show notes, um, watership down, like these kinds of stories that Laleen are like Paul. Is that it? Yeah. Laleen Paul. That's that. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, and that one in particular, cause it's about like bee society. Um, but you know, these are all these stories that are told, from the perspective of animals as they exist now on earth. Right. And they verge from like literary to fantasy ish. Whereas this was very much a story about like spiders as they like could be not as they are. Um, and you know, the ideas of like the way they develop technology and the way they develop consciousness itself and the way they develop society, all of these things were just, um, you will get into the specifics of it, but I was just constantly fascinated. Yeah. I mean, I, so it's, it reminded me of a lot of different things. I I agree with all those things. I, it reminded me of post-human stories about post-singularity descriptions Mm -hmm. of, of evolution, except that it was just spiders and it was very, very interested in the details um, of how the spiders would transcend um, mm-hmm. like the biological and cultural details. It was very interested in the question of what is spider culture if, you know, if what, what could spider culture be? I mean, like I said, one of the things I, mm-hmm. I like about this book is that it doesn't it's not incredibly dogmatic about its views as a book so it you know i think the the sense i get is uh, this is one possibility for spiders society or like transcendent spiders this is not like the way it would happen you know Mm -hmm. that's something i i really don't like about hard sf that i i don't like some stories that you know without naming names i don't like some stories that um spend a lot of time trying to convince you that this is definitely how it would go and it's like, right, well, right. you know, it's no. like I logic I mean, it out. You can't know the that. Future, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's uh, that's silly. Um, this is not a book that felt like that at all. It felt like we're expl- this is exploring a possible mm-hmm. scenario. Right. And maybe even, you know, we keep calling it hard SF. And I think it fits within that. You know, we had that whole discussion about what is hard SF mm-hmm. in the pre-read. And I think it very easily fits within that subgenre. But one of the things that I did appreciate was that. So this virus, the like uplift virus that like, you know, uplifts the spiders was a little bit hand wavy in a way that I kind of yeah appreciated. Like there was this element of the story that's just like, listen, I want to tell a story and this is the thing I need to get there. So like, don't worry too much about it. Like, enjoy the story. Um, yeah, and I exactly. think that's sometimes something that like hard sci-fi can go too deep on like it can get too worried about like oh have i justified every single future science fictional conceit and it's like no you don't have to justify it you just have to like accept the logic of it yeah and there's a little bit of a balancing element there it would it Mm would have it could have felt weird this book did not have this problem but you could imagine a story where too much of it felt hand wavy when parts of it were very very not hand wavy you could imagine, you know, but oh, this, sure, book, sure. this book walked that line very, very well. Yep. And, um, 
you know, that whole thing too was just like, so I, I, this is where I'll get on my soapbox for just like a few minutes. Um, because I, you know, in college studied linguistics and my senior thesis was on the evolution of language and the evolution of consciousness through language. So this whole process of like watching the spiders uplift and watching them go from like unconscious to like language using conscious beings was like super excited for me. Like that's the kind of shit I get into. Um, but you know, one of the things that was really interesting about this, like, you know, this understanding, you know, with with quotes that the spiders develop is that some of this actually happens in the real world, like in the real world, in evolution, you know, it's obviously not a virus that can get passed along, but animals and humans even developed learned behaviors that then over time become innate behaviors. And there's a lot of question of like, how does behavior go from a purely learned thing into like genetic encoding? Because right. Like that sounds very Lamarckian. It sounds like this idea of, you know, well you learn it and then your kids just get it. And like, well, we know that that's not how genes work. We know that's not how evolution works. So how does it work in the real world? Um, and one of the answers that I am partial to myself is this idea of what's called the Baldwin effect, which is essentially when a learned behavior and a societally learned behavior. So a learned behavior that like is also taught to children of a species becomes very important to the survival of that species. That importance of that learned behavior itself is a selection pressure. So essentially what happens is that children who can learn that behavior faster survive more. Um, and so what you do is you build these more or less these learning pathways through natural selection, through pure behavioral fitness selection that like, you know, the animals and in, you know, even in the case of humans, this is what happened with language and why like humans can learn language so easily. Like language was a like survival element for us. Like there was a point at which being able to like communicate was like a huge selection pressure for us. And so children who could learn to communicate faster and younger and earlier and better, like survive more than children who didn't. And like through this thing, this, what was ori originally just like a purely learned behavior of being able to like, you know, match certain calls and certain signals to certain like things in the real world, you know, slowly became this innate like language learning facility that we talk about now when we talk about universal grammar and these other kind of like elements of like, you know, language being an innate ability in humans um, is that we like, you know, evolved ourselves to be able to learn this thing more quickly because the more quickly we could learn it, the like better off we would be overall. Um, and you see this like all the time in different like, uh, you know, kind of like behavioral traits. Like you can see it happen in mice and in other animals where like certain behavioral traits over time will like all the animals will just know how to do it. They don't have to be taught because that behavioral trait is so successful that it like puts that pressure to like build those pathways from like a innate standpoint. So I always, I thought that was really cool that like I never read a sci-fi novel before that took these kinds of ideas of like different paths evolutionary biology can take and place them in the like sci-fi packet. It was like, well, what happened if we like apply that, plus some like scientific juju magic to like make spiders that can do this. What does it look like if you can like, you know, apply the Baldwin effect to your own children on purpose? It's like yeah. so cool. Well, and not just that, I, I, I love all of that, but it's also specifically he wants to do it. He wants to play in a sandbox that's like mm, alien. He, he's not mm -hmm. going to take a mammal 
Mm-hmm. He's not going to take, he's going to take something that is familiar enough. Like, okay, well we have this species of spider on earth called Portia, Portia, whatever. Um, we're going to take that and we're going to, you know, make that our sandbox and we're going to take all these ideas and play in that and see what we get. And then, right. and then he just, he just ran the clock forward further and further and further. So mm-hmm. I, I, the, the really like the, one of the most fun things about this kind of, uh, part of the novel is the way that you know you could imagine a, a novel half the length of this that had half as many sections that didn't go as far right with some of these ideas the first couple of sections with the spiders are already so chock full of like really interesting concepts um that it's just incredibly satisfying you know for instance he you know he's he's interested not just in these effects on one species at a time, but what if this is happening to multiple species that live in the same environment? How are they right. going to interact with each other? Okay, well, it turns out that my juju, you know, uh, sci-fi virus has infected everything that's not a mammal on this planet. And it, you know, worked better on some than others, but there's these different species that now have to learn how to coexist. There's ants that are affected by it, as well as spiders, as well oh, as stomatopods in the oceans. Yes. <laughs> oh man. Yes. I've been waiting to get to that point. Let's keep I know. going. Sorry. We're not even there yet. We're no, still, I know. It's still cool, even before we get that. Like so the ants um are affected by this and they develop a completely different kind of uh complexity yes. than the spiders do. Their right. complexity is communal. You know, individual ants are not particularly uh behaviorally complex in this book as they are in reality as they are not in reality, but like the ant colonies described in the book like real life and colonies are, you know, many Mutually orders complex. of magnitude more complex than their individual members mm-hmm. to the point where they are capable of some really interesting behaviors. And then they interact with the spiders and all of them are subject to um, the, uh, the selection the kind pressure, of the virus selection. Cool. Pressures. Yeah. The, the like, you know, cool, uh, cool Evo concepts. Right. Yeah. Ours are like, you know, I mean, there's like, throwaway lines about like crustaceans and like other <laughs> you know like sentient yeah, beings stomatopods in the ocean it's awesome yeah so 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 then like parallel to the like long multi-generational sort of flashes of human story we have these flashes of spider story and um in each flash of spider story unlike the human story where where we have you know continuity of, of characters um of like individual characters uh, and like a more or less sort of comprehensible overplot. The overplot here is just like the evolution of their entire civilization. Um, so, right. so there's a very different, um, you know, set of like things going on. Stories. Yeah. There, there's a very different level of technology and, and culture and set of political problems going on in every mm. spider story. Um, in early spider stories, you know, they're encountering the ants for the first time and they're learning how to domesticate them and how to manipulate the ant colonies so that their incredible sophistication is in the service of individual spider goals. And each ant colony then can become a particular kind of tool for the spiders as it is like carefully directed so that it will grow only in certain directions and not in others. 
but then they encounter right. well even earlier than that there's the story yeah, yeah, yeah. that is like you know the spiders versus the ants well, of yeah, like yeah. what kind of consciousness will win out and like or can can both of them coexist it, which is a really like you know worrying question yeah. and, and it's so cool because the spiders have already domesticated ants by the time they run into this one kind of like really aggressive expansionist ant colony and that one per- had they yes they had they had their own and, oh okay and, okay and um but they had like relatively few and they weren't very sophisticated compared to the big colony. Right, 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 right. Okay. That's what and I remember. The, the, and this big, so they, they finally encounter this like sort of super colony that is very aggressive. An expansionist right. ant colony. And it has developed um, much more sophisticated weapons and uh, ways mm. of manipulating its environment with chemicals to create bombs and explosives and like metal right. and like flamethrowers and like and... yeah and like ants that have metal mandibles and like armor <laughs> and like and then the spiders have to go to war to save their civilization from this onrushing super colony but they kind of are losing and you know it looks like the ants might mm-hmm. succeed and wipe out all the spiders but then the spiders develop a way to manipulate chemicals uh manipulate the scents that the ants use to like maintain their internal you know s- social structure in an even more sophisticated way so the spiders are able to take over the super uh, the ant super colony and just like co-opt it and right. then they have right. an in- well that's yeah not exactly like one of the interesting things there was like they what they managed to do is beat it back and once they beat it back enough the super colonies like just self-preservation instinct pops in and says like oh well like if we keep fighting you you'll exterminate us so use us that's don't oh, no I, us. to me it was more like you know they they could have destroyed it all right like as soon as they develop that um the the scent that- right but there was there was the specific thing and i think this was actually important because it pays off later in the story which is that like the spiders realize that like oh like we don't have to kill yeah, off yeah, the yeah, ants that's because I, at that's, a certain point their self-preservation instinct kicks in so they 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 have a choice to destroy it or not um and they choose to not destroy it they choose instead to sure, co-opt sure. it in exactly the way that they had previously co-opted other ant colonies and now they have this now they make this giant leap forward technologically because they suddenly have access to this much more sophisticated kind of ant tool that they didn't have before right and then it yeah well well and the big payoff there which i didn't expect at the very end is they then like do that same thing to yeah, the humans yeah, i love it right i and absolutely like, love it like the planting and payoff Ugh. there like you know it, it felt a little bit like this magic trick because there are so many yeah. ways in which the like final twist which is like really in the fir- the final like five or ten pages like oftentimes those kind of final twists really don't work i've talked about this before i don't like twisty mm-hmm. kind of like aha type moments in fiction yeah. um because i think they're often like not set up very well whereas this was i felt kind of bad that i didn't see what was going on yeah. there like i felt kind of bad that i was like oh of course they're just gonna they keep saying it's just like an ant colony throughout this chapter because just like an ant colony they're just trying to co-opt us like they don't think in terms of the prisoner dilemma they think in terms of other dilemmas and like their answer is to like oh yeah well you know we gotta like get them working right you know these poor humans don't work correctly together every stage of spider history um when there is ever any kind of conflict on spider world um, they eventually resolve the conflict by growing together and achieving a new and higher form of symbiotic relationship, 
whether it's with the mm-hmm. stomatopods, with each type of ant, with each other, with males right. versus females, right, with males versus females. At each level, they 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 more or less do the same thing. Just as at each level, humans to this point have more or less done the same thing. I, I absolutely mm-hmm. love that the uh, that the end of the book is that like humans totally lose. But thank God, like losing has a different meaning to species who aren't as dumb as humans. Like, <laughs> or like, right. And like the, you know, the juxtaposition of like, you know, the, the terror and horror of like giant ants infesting the last outpost of humans and like in a, what looks like a battle to the death mm-hmm. juxtaposed with like, Oh, they just wanted to make us better. They just wanted the, hu- the future liberals want, yeah. right. Was this like great kind of like, you know, Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I see <laughs> the, spiders are, the spiders are going in for a hug and the humans are like shrieking in terror. And then finally they do hug <laughs> right. and the humans are like, Oh, they're just like, and the best fucking part is when Karst, this like yeah. you know fucking neck this whose character I did I, actually, I liked a character I, I did enjoy too, through but he's the like whole this thing. like you know thick headed like military bro guy I mean he's the space marine yeah. trope he is literally yeah. just the space marine yeah. trope and he you know he it seems he has been killed we we have been led to believe that he has been killed in battle mm. with spiders on the hull of the colony ship but instead you know he's just been infected then it was all over i believe is the- yeah <laughs> and, but instead he, he's been infected you know with the this like spider with spider, the love yeah, virus it's like a love virus that the spiders have developed <laughs> to make humans realize that we're all just children of the same you know far earth <laughs> and we should just band together and like colonize the galaxy together and we are stronger together stronger together mm-hmm. I fucking loved it. I loved it so much. The spiders went in for a hug. The humans tried to brush them off and squash them, but the spiders were too good at hugging. They were too good. And fucking the one human that the spiders had access to was just like telling them to kill the other humans over and over again. Right. Right. And you kept thinking that like it was the opposite. I mean, like this is this is where, you know, again, like I was very pleasantly surprised by how well this twist paid off yeah, and how yeah. well I felt like, Me too. Oh, I should have gotten, of course the thing Karst would or not Karst Kern. Uh, Kern was suggesting was to kill them all. Cause that's what she's been suggesting this whole time. Yeah. Of course, but it's that's more, the but conflict, it's so much more complicated than was. that, right? Because she wasn't, she's not, she actually until that point had not been like this murderous maniac. She, she had had a chance to mm-hmm. kill them and not done it. You know, and, right. and, and I, that's yet another example of the book doing an incredibly good job of of not actually just adopting the tropes wholesale. Like it would have been easy for this book yeah. to have Kern be a maniac the whole time or have Gullion be just a maniac and not like a sort of, you know, maniac we can kind of identify with or to have, mm-hmm. you know, Karst be a total idiot instead of like, oh, OK, yeah, he's like not this is like beyond him and he's just struggling and his rictus grin isn't like pure bloodlust. It's like terror. And you know what I mean? Like mm. the book is so good at that sort of thing. And I, this is maybe also a moment to say a word about how spider technology in this book is my fucking favorite. And I absolutely love everything about their technology. <laughs> and I love that fucking uplifted human personality mixed with AI of Rana Kern is re-uploaded into an ant computer. Into ants? <laughs> Dude, so cool. I read that. I so cool. She's uploaded to an ant computer where she lives forever yep. <laughs> among her children who treat her like a 
weird aunt. You know what I mean? Like right, like a weird like deity. Yeah, they aunt. treat her like this like <laughs> absolute weirdo. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did one thing that I enjoyed about the sp- spider. Um, you know, oh, and man, I talk I about this a lot in our various podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely been seeing your yeah. light blink red as you clip. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Um, it is. It is. We're excited. Um, yeah, if you stand back a little bit, it won't. Yeah. It won't happen as much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. The uh, the the thing I you know I talk about this a lot on this podcast of like I really like it when stories include religion when science fiction stories mm. include religion. It's just like an element of society Mm -hmm. like that's a thing that societies have and like the relationship with of the spiders with the messenger Mm. and how it changes over time and how it's dogmatic and like you know it's this thing that like it's almost like of course right like of course you have like a single messenger in the sky sending you messages like you're gonna treat that as you know not just like problems to be solved but as like knowledge that is being given Mm -hmm. right like of course that's how like you know whatever whether it's monkeys or spiders or whatever like you know they get those math problems and like they're worried about messaging back even though they have the Mm -hmm. answers right and like that's beautiful that That is like this like that feels like true on so many levels it honestly um you know to use this as therapy for a moment reminds me of when i was a really little kid i was in kindergarten and i learned to tie my shoes and i didn't tell my parents for months that i could tie my shoes because i wanted them to keep tying my shoes yeah. for me and i thought they would be mad when they found yeah. out that i didn't need them anymore that's classic you know and it's like it so it got at this like you know strangely for me like very psychologically real like all we're talking about no no characters but it's like oh it's actually like really psychologically true thing about like societies and like people in that sense of like oh yeah we have the answers but of course we don't reply it's God talking. Like, how can we reply to God? It's blasphemous. <laughs> you know, it's blasphemous exactly. blasphemous to reply to God. I really, there's a lot uh, of cool, so I, there's a lot of cool ways of um, thinking about how religion affects people's behavior. And um, I think one of the most interesting to me is I, it, the, the, the way that it subverts like obvious trope choices, I come back to again and again because I love it. It would have mm-hmm. been easy for of Rana Kern. But it subverts them actually not just for subverting. It's not for the yeah. sake of subverting it just, them. It's for telling a better and yeah. more interesting yeah. story, which I just want to point out cuz like there's a lot of like oh it's so subversive type it's stuff. It's not like that. that. Just it just do doesn't not care. And it's not like it doesn't that at care all. about them. It has a better right. idea. So, you know what it would have right. been so easy for Avrana Kern to just like be grossed out by the spiders. Period. Cuz they weren't her monkeys. Mm-hmm. But no, instead mm-hmm. she like has a moment where she thinks about it and is like this is these are still my beautiful children and now i at least understand them and then it brings her closer <laughs> to them and i i i was right. so affected by that part of the book i absolutely loved when she figures it out what's going on and mm-hmm. it kind of you know for the first time sort of is able then to like deal with her situation in a way that makes more sense yeah. she sort of recognizes that she's no longer a human and recognizes she like finally faces the reality of what's happened. Um, and, and like, she's still kind of, you know, messed up in some sense, you know, but like she, she more than any other character experiences psychological growth, (laughs) (laughs) she and the spiders. Right. So she is able to recognize them finally as her true children and develops this beautiful relationship with them. 
And it's it's right. awesome. Just the idea well, of her encouraging them, her helping them as they like set out into space and her trying to protect them from what she sees as their enemies. It was beautiful. I loved it. Right. One thing I really liked about that too was this um this idea that like you upload a human into a computer and like sure you get the computer smarts but you also get like the human's quirks such as like you know we're really good at like not seeing things that are right in front of yeah. us and like Ivana Kern was so good at it that she could just like delete the memory she didn't want to have access yeah, to. Exactly. <laughs> like she could use her computer nature to like <laughs> do these tricks that we play on ourselves at just like a godlike level. <laughs> oh man, it was awesome. <laughs> and it was like, that was so great. But also then it's like, okay, well, the flip side of that, like you said, is that when she realizes she was wrong, she's like, oh, well, that's sad, but I can just rewrite myself to like make all of this make sense and be good. So I'll do yeah, that. And she goes back in time <laughs> to the memories that she never deleted and just reinterprets them and like gets rid of everything that doesn't right. make sense anymore and is good. Good to go. <laughs> but I, the <laughs> yeah. moment that was it's like the moment. Damn, that'd be a yeah. lot cheaper than therapy, wouldn't it? <laughs> the, the moment that was the most beautiful for me was, you know, when when um, Fabian and um, Portia are trying to reach space for the first time and you know they're yeah. and like Portia Fabian's gotten Portia back in the ship but they're like you're but they're both gonna die and they're and like you know he 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 becomes the first male to ever speak to God and he talks <laughs> to the the messenger because he's got no radio contact with land and he's dying and Portia's dying and they're falling back to to earth and he talks to the messenger and she says you know like I can help you you know, and and then right. finally, like she salutes him as he allows himself yep. to be killed to save Portia. And it was just like <laughs> there was so much emotion in that. It was so beautifully done. I like absolutely loved it. And it's amazing how effective the book is at getting to that moment at like building over hundreds of pages to a moment like that with like fucking mm -hmm. spiders. They're like horrible right. like as soon as the and then like a few chapters later the humans see them and it's like oh my god they're like horrible nightmare monsters but they have this beautiful civilization right. that we've already like teared up over and they're like triumphs over nature and the you know the universe the the, the cards that the universe has stacked against them are like so moving but they're like mm -hmm. spiders and then it makes it makes the ending even more powerful because you know the build-up to the ending isn't just the the setup of oh this is how spiders solve problems with adversaries stuff it's also mm -hmm. the you know raising the stakes by establishing just how different we are from them so that right it, we can see as humans naturally we can see just how hard it would be to empathize with something like that and then we do it and it's so and 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 it's so much more rewarding mm -hmm. oh dude and mm -hmm. the epilogue with the spider human hybrid ship Oh, right. Going back to Earth <laughs> to claim their birthright. Oh, wait. No, were they going yes! back to Earth? I didn't think they were going. I thought they were going to explore further into but there the, was a signal. Be, and I thought it was. Yeah. From Earth. Oh, I I interpret that as a signal from somewhere else. Actually. So there is a um, he is writing a sequel or has written it, I assume, at this point, because uh, it's going to get published in 2019. Um, and so I, I'm very curious 
you know, yeah. this is a book that stands alone really, really well. Um, and I think it like very much works. It's like it tells its own single story. And I'm very curious, like what kind of story is going to be told next? Because I could actually see now that this world has been set up in the way that it has, like kind of like more traditional character driven psychological stories actually like fitting within it really well. Uh, and I'm really, I'm really curious to see sort of like what, what turn that sequel takes and like whether it is following this ship as it goes and tries to find out this other, um, this other signal. Oh man. I think it's actually ambiguous, dude. I'm like reading that last yeah. page again. I think it could be anywhere. Right. That's, that's the, that's what I took from it that, that it was, you know, not that it was definitely not earth, but that it wasn't, yeah, yeah, earth. Yeah. it wasn't like, it's Oh, not we're going back to earth anywhere, and taking yeah. home. Right. I got the sense that like maybe it's other humans, yeah, maybe not. Maybe it's another uplift Monkeys. project. Maybe it's actually aliens finally, yeah. you know, because it's this like, you know, universe or galaxy at least like without non-human aliens um, or non-Earth yeah. descended aliens, whatever you want to say there. Um, you know, and it's like I felt that it was left nicely ambiguous. Yeah. It's like, you know, a lot. Also, there's this kind of like, you know, idea of like the spiders and humans now have this empathy th- gene virus going on so like oh good new friends exactly you know, it's like maybe it won't exactly. be new friends <laughs> oh i love it so much it's like oh this is such i just absolutely love the values that this book is espousing it's like oh like i i don't think i've ever read a book about colonizing the universe that suggested that like an optimal way to do it would be to engineer spider symbiotes and then use their spider symbiote cultural proclivity for cutting through prisoners' dilemmas to develop an <laughs> optimized way of interacting with new aliens. That is a great way forward for humanity. I want us to do that. Let's actually do that. <laughs> well, you know. This is the future the, I want. The first... Right. The, the the parts of that future you're leaving out is like the near extinction of the human race, like the multiple like rises and falls yeah, of well civilization we that, that it takes part. to get Let's there. Let's just go straight to the spiders. <laughs> can we? Because the spiders did take like five millennia to evolve. Yeah, all right. All right. But I mean, like we can save time by not thinking it's going to be monkeys. <laughs> right right i did i did really like that um you know and obviously there are a lot of allusions in the book to um to david brin and yeah. his uplift oh, series yeah. which we know, didn't talk and, and about like, last time and we should have it's such an obvious choice right well i you know i i chose not to a little bit just because the spoiler yeah. thing and not wanting not, not yeah. wanting to know how much we want to get in there but you know there are a lot of allusions to david brin like like in the text of the book the the one of the ships is named the brin for for very obvious reasons um but you know i think it is like in brin's books the you know so i've only read star tide rising i love star tide rising Super i think fun. it is such a phenomenal book on so many levels um but that is one of the things like the humans in that novel they uplift dolphins and they uplift chimpanzees in particular um and it's a really interesting you know sort of like i really like the way that the humans and the chimps and the dolphins like interact in that book and the different types of consciousnesses that they all have and all of this going on um but it is really cool to watch someone say like oh that's a neat trick 
Watch me fucking do it with spiders, watch me, bro. Watch me absolutely <laughs> take this to another level. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And in a loving, like, you know, like standing yeah. on the shoulders of giants yeah. way, obviously, you know, it's yeah. it's not actually antagonistic like that, but um standing on the chitinous know. exoskeletons of giants. <laughs> Isn't it chitinous? I don't know. How to say nah, I don't I don't know how to say either. I <laughs> But I think uh, I think that's what I want to do now. I mean, like you know, I this book you're gonna become a Spider Man. I I'm just like, you know, I'm so Spider Man right now. Spider Man, multiple legged uplifted Spider Man. Oh man, <laughs> I I love I love the spiders when they develop Turing architecture for their ant colonies. It's I just know. like so fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, you know, then that's another book that I was definitely thinking was Girdle Escher Bach and the sort of like, you know, the the aunt colony in that book, because there's like a there's an aside and almost like weirdly science fictional aside in that book about like, a you know, it's not weird. an ant colony. What? I don't well, It's not weird. I mean, it's it it's there's a lot of sci fi that likes ants. Sci fi likes ants. <laughs> Right. Right. No, no. I'm saying the the Girdel Asher Bach. It's weird in that context because it's a nonfiction oh, book oh, about computers. Okay. But there is this like yeah. strange kind of parable type aside about like, mm-hmm. you know, the story of an ant colony that has like a personality and how like none of the individual ants does. Yeah. Um, in my experience, people that are into myrmecology are at, super into that. In fact, the only people I yeah. know who are into myrmecology are computer scientists. <laughs> what is so what it is makes myrmecology? A lot of ants study of ants. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't know that actually. Um, right, right. And I think well, I, and to my point, I think that was like an early kind of like inception of that meme into computer scientist brain was yeah, particularly yeah, yeah, that no, book sure, and that that sure. chapter of that book um and so that's why that's why i bring it up because it was written in the 70s and had some of these kind of like the precursors of, of these ideas you know another book that does is greg egan's diaspora which i mentioned a little bit in the mm. last episode but um you know i think the title of the short story that got turned into a chapter of diaspora was um uh something like Wang's famous carpets or something along those lines. And it's the story about um, this life form on this planet that is just like seaweed. Um, But as they explore the planet and they explore the seaweed, they realize that like the seaweed is actually Turing machines. Yeah. And like all the actual life of the planet is virtual and is happening like in this virtual world world that the like seaweed Turing machines create. Right. Wang's carpets. Um, And that was, I remember I read that story in high school and I remember just being like blown away. Like, like it had all of these big ideas. And so to get to the, to the ant section of this novel and, you know, get some of those same ideas about this, you know, none of the ants are conscious. It's questionable even if like, like whether the spite, like the individual spider consciousness, which at least we can recognize as conscious versus the like unconscious ant intelligence, like which is stronger which wins. Yeah. And it's kind of cool because, you know, we met, I mentioned another novel blind sight by Peter Watts earlier um, in the pre-read too. And, you know, his answer is very much that like, Oh, the unconscious intelligence wins, but it's a little bit unclear to me if like, that's actually true. Like it's, it's a little bit unclear to me that like consciousness doesn't actually confer any, any benefit to intelligence. I think that, I think that it does, especially in terms of like attention and purposefulness and the ability to like focus attention on specific problems. Um, and that's sort of the answer that this book comes to, which is like, well, 
the ants might be stronger in a lot of ways, but the one thing that like the individually conscious creatures has is they can focus their all their might on like one single question and they can really have that attention and focus and like just do that one problem solving really well, which is kind of like a cool kind of like, you know, yeah. juxtaposition. It, it's interesting though, because like there, there's clearly a difference there. There's some kind of difference. There's some kind of distinction that makes sense there for sure. Mm-hmm. But on another level, I mean, is that, is that a sufficient definition? Is that a sufficient characteristic um, to distinguish consciousness from non-consciousness? No, it's not. I don't think it's sufficient, but I think it's one of the the things. And when, when, so this is something that gets brought up a lot in the like philosophy of consciousness, philosophy of mind, philosophy of language world that I kind of like existed in academically as much as I have any academic study now, which is not really, but you know, obviously I care a lot about it still, which is the question of like, what is the val- What is the, sur- the adaptive value of consciousness? Like we know what the av- adaptive value of intelligence is, right? Like that seems pretty clear, but the actual adaptive value of reflexive consciousness and the b- ability to like know oneself as oneself and the ability to like have this subjective experience, like what it is to be a human and to be the individual that you are, um, that, that there's a lot of debate in the scientific literature and the philosophic literature about what the actual adaptive benefit of that is or whether there is even an adaptive benefit like some might suggest that there's no adaptive benefit benefit it's purely a side product of being intelligent enough others think that no you can obviously have like vastly more intelligent things with like zero consciousness whatsoever um and you know one of the suggestions is that you know, one thing that we know is it's not sufficient for consciousness, but it is necessary for consciousness is what we call like attention. And it's slightly more complicated than just what like colloquially we mean as attention, but it really means like the ability for the whole nervous system to kind of like work together towards common goals and to like focus on those common goals. Yeah. Um, again, weirdly enough, this is a thing that I mention in the next episode that, that we're going to have, but there's, um, it was a few months ago I went to this, um, the NYU philosophy department does these, um, big public conferences once every two years. So it's an academic conference, but it's open up to the public. So anyone can like go and, and join it, which is usually not how these academic conferences work. Um, and the last one was on animal cognition at this NYU, like animal cognition thing that I went to, uh, one of the, the researchers, there, researchers, octopi, octopuses, octopodes, whatever, um, he researches octopuses. And one of the things that he is currently working on, and I emailed with him back and forth a little bit about it afterwards, because it's really fascinating was this idea that, you know, octopi octopodes don't have a single like central nervous system the same way we do and they're you know essentially each limb can act as its own cognition slash computation like whatever its own separate nervous system each limb can act completely individually of all the other limbs that said what it seems to be the case and also octopuses are really smart they're like really, really smart in a very like alien kind of way, but they can solve very complex problems. They can think about the future. They can plan. They can do these things that like we really only associate with like a couple of different animals, like even like, you know, they're like smarter than cats in some circumstances, right? They're very, very smart. Um, and so one of the interesting things about octopuses is, is that it looks like one of the things they can do is to focus their attention. So they don't, 
their limbs do work independently and can work independently. But there are times in times of great stress and times of hunting and times of need when the octopuses can more or less choose to coalesce all of their different neural firing patterns into a single firing pattern and to focus all of their attention on a single problem in front of them, uh, which is this when you think about it in terms of like, well, attention is necessary for consciousness. And in fact, like the more attention you have, the more conscious you have actually suggests. And I talked to him and, and the, the researcher said like, yes, this is actually what I meant that octopuses can choose to become conscious and choose to like stop being conscious. Like one of the things they can do is like choose to have more conscious attention. And again, this isn't conscious in the same way that you and I are, but it is this focusing of attention and focusing of like willpower. And then also the like letting go of that willpower to be able to like do different things. And it's really cool to think about these alien types of intelligence that like, you know, we take for granted that like consciousness is like one thing that you either have or you don't. But that's not necessarily the only way for intelligence to be. Yes, that's true. I mean, even even in our own lives, I mean, it's fairly clear people spend a lot of their lives unconscious. We have a word for Mm -hmm. that. You know, we, we say it's unconscious, but they're asleep or they're something else. They're dreaming. There's a lot of different states that humans are commonly in that that actually have are very different from our sort of wakeful conscious state that we associate right. with cognition and stuff. But I mean, I, I, I mean, I basically agree with like 98 percent of everything you said. I don't want to like detract from the, the vast bulk of it. But they're, they're just the one thing, the one thing that doesn't make sense to me, um, you know, I, I think it doesn't it doesn't really makes sense to me that uh attention is a like attention seems like a useful uh thing to investigate as part of a larger investigation of consciousness right for sure but it also seems like obviously not the same thing as consciousness no but again it's just like it's the necessary versus sufficient thing like we know it's necessary like we're very very sure that that attention is necessary although not sufficient for consciousness and so well that doesn't that's that's exactly what doesn't entirely make sense to me like i i it seems clearly related in some way but why why do you think it's um, again attention here has like a bit of a like state-of-the-art terminology it is not the same thing as like when you and i say that like oh i'm paying attention to one thing versus another thing right it's it's also the like sympathetic firing of like a central nervous system or something central nervous system like where the different pieces are working together and like creating a sum that is greater than the like whole of its parts um this is where I'm off the top of my head, not going to be able to make an argument that's going to convince you at all. But I, you know, we do. And like most scientists, neuroscientists and philosophers who study this thing do accept that, like without that ability of like attention, without the ability to actually like focus disparate parts together, you just like don't need con like consciousness doesn't even come like be anything like consciousness really is in certain ways the like fact that you have all of these different processing centers like working towards one thing and then there's like a story being told about like why they're working on that one thing and how they're working together and that story is in a lot of ways what consciousness is for us is the fact that we have these different processing centers like working in sympathetic harmony that makes that makes sense as a description of humans um but it doesn't 
immediately makes sense to me as a description of, uh, as a useful like description of a broader category that might include things that aren't humans. Um, right. Uh, I mean, I'm not going anyway, to be able to. I don't, I don't, I don't know, know enough I, now to convince you it's, necessarily, it's but I would. I, I would. I would say that this kind of stuff to me, it, it like what I have read does convince me to a degree, and this idea that like you know. You know, we think of our own consciousness like, sure, there's like wakefulness and like sleepingness. And, you know, it's like there's not a whole lot of like in between states there necessarily. Whereas the idea that like some creatures or some ant colonies or some like whatever could have states that are in between could choose to become like more coalesced and less coalesced is like really fascinating to me. And in the context of this, you know, this book and the story in particular, where it's really kind of like trying to dive into like, well, what does a, you know, an ant colony intelligence look like versus a spider intelligence yeah. and consciousness versus like human or, you know, Ivana Kearns, you know, it's like these different types of embodied cognition where like the body you have or the bodies you have, the like way that you do computation, like all can actually like affect the type of being that you are in a more like abstract conscious, you know, identity kind of way. It's like super fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is really interesting. I, I I like thinking about it too. I I think it's interesting in the context of this book. I I I feel like my reaction to the moment when the spiders co-opt the super colony mm-hmm. was to wonder if I felt like they were killing something, or if I felt like they were not killing something. If I felt mm-hmm. instead like they were. Um, like hacking something instead of killing it basically. Right. Right. Um, Like, like taking a a sort of, um, unaware substrate and like reformatting it to do different tasks. And I really, I really, I mean like the book doesn't necessarily take a side, I think in that, or if it does, Mm. it probably comes down on the, like they didn't kill it, but right. But, um, well, I think it came down on the side of like that particular ant colony actually wasn't conscious and it was like really intelligent, but it was like a, you know, computer style intelligence, not yeah. a, well, not so a what I, what I want, cl- clearly the, the subsequent colonies, I think we are meant to think that of the subsequent colonies, clearly of all mm. the sort of descendant colonies that the spiders develop. Right. Right. But that one sort of before the spiders defeat it right i i wonder like it's not entirely clear to me what we're meant to think and right. even if the book takes well, it's a position, clear what the spiders think right yes, like yes, that's what yes. i'm saying the spiders like yes. clearly that's, that's clearly true. that yeah right i mean i think regardless of what the book's position is on that i i wonder about it because i think this to, to me this is like another way of framing the, the question of experience um so I actually tend to think that it makes more sense to talk about behaviors than experience. And if something has a sufficiently complicated set of behaviors, um, it is possible for me to imagine something that had behaviors that were consistent with attention without having like the neurological, without having the like substrate behave in a way that's consistent with attention. Do you know what I mean? So like if you imagine a giant ant colony. Well, that's the Chinese room problem, right? Yeah, but like, I, 
And I think that's what the the ant colony was trying to suggest was a degree of like an answer to the Chinese room problem, which is like, sure, none of the ants are conscious, but like you can have Ivana Cairn's consciousness uploaded into an ant colony and essentially like, you know, like the, the end of the book is that, oh, yeah, everything is information if you like know how to process it correctly or something along those is the line used. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I, what I what I was getting at is I, I I think that like if the substrate is doing something different, then it is different. But I could mm-hmm. imagine a situation where there's two very radically different substrates, but very different behaviors and the same emergent phenomenon. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and right. that that I guess th- so. <laughs> I could imagine it. I don't know if that's possible or not. Right. But yeah, I'm I'm generally personally just very, um, very skeptical of arguments of like, I could imagine it. So we should take it seriously. I mean, the P zombies argument is one that's never like held. I I agree with you. I don't think that makes any I don't think that makes sense. That's sort of I'm trying to sort of make a slightly different argument than that. Okay. okay. Um, I don't like the P zombie thing. To me, what I'm suggesting is two non zombies, one of which looks like a zombie in some ways and the other of which mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. and they're both non-zombies sure sure right right um, yes yes i think i think i see what you're saying in that case right and i think you know i mean i think a lot of this is like what we're dancing around is that this stuff is really hard that mm-hmm. like there are things that are very intuitive to us that like a you know that a computer is not alive, that like a cat is alive, that like humans are clearly alive and that there's something, you know, it's like to me, at least like there's these things that are, you know, maybe I shouldn't say to us, but like to me, there are these like strong, hard intuitions that I have about this stuff that I constantly have to remind myself that like, well, I don't actually know. I don't know the experience of of other humans, much less of of animals and that kind of thing. And I think there's a certain element of, you know, a willingness to admit your own ignorance on this yeah, kind of totally. stuff. That's really important. And that's part of why I would like, you know, something like the, the, the octopus it's part of me. is really interested in it as this description of like, Oh, like, you know, maybe, maybe these things, maybe it is just this thing of like, you know, they can choose to have like a stronger or a less strong identity at different times. And what does that say? But also part of it is just like, that as a thought experiment like that as like forcing myself not to become complacent with the idea that like consciousness is or is not that like either you're awake or you're asleep or that even that like you could choose to be one or the other in a way that like we can't that you can choose to like do one type of cognition or another type of cognition um you know and this is something that even the 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 you know and there's trade-offs to that there's something that in the book that you know these trade-offs are literalized in a way with like you can choose to be awake and aging or not even asleep, but in hibernation and not aging, you know? And so it's it's this way of like, it's itself its own question of like, you can be conscious or not conscious, but there's a benefit to being not conscious. Right. And here that benefit is not one of cognition. It's one of, well, you don't age even as like vast amounts of time goes by. So you can be alive later when it's necessary, but then what does necessary mean? You still only Mm -hmm. have so many years on the, you know, in the universe or whatever, like, you know, and it's like these kinds of trade-offs are to me interesting and always worth kind of like poking at the general assumptions I have about like what aliveness looks like. Yeah, totally. And then I think even in the context of humans, I mean, there's a very real way where, you know, in this book, 
the Gilgamesh itself is is and like the Gilgamesh as entity, it, it, you know, has a kind mm-hmm. of character to it where, mm-hmm. you know, it has these different more moving pieces on, on its inside that are, you know, sort of analogous to the different moving pieces in spider civilization. Um, mm-hmm. And those moving pieces have an ability to survive multiple generations uh, of other moving pieces. And, you know, so because of the weird types of technology that exist in this world um the distinction between the kind of hive creature of the gilgamesh and the spider society which is hive-ish in some ways and not in others mm-hmm. uh, is elided a little i mean it's it sort of it, it it shrinks um yeah and 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 so you know you get these really cool totally totally ignoring all the stuff about uploading human minds just the fact of humanity being reduced to like one vessel Mm. the the nature of a vessel as um closed environment and metaphor for entity that moves around under its own power um is very compelling is is like a very compelling way to sort of trick yourself into seeing it as a different kind of entity um right rather than just a collection of humans there's also this kind of fun thing that happens well fun um (laughs) i'll maybe take that word back but like an interesting thing that happens with the you know the different populations on the gilgamesh that do end up reproducing and having like multiple generations versus the cargo and key crew who like don't Mm -hmm. who do have access to these pods and the way that like you know when when holston is like awoken at different times there are different groups and different you know i almost want to call them like civilizations you know one's called the tribe there's the cult one that have gone through this process and like his just willingness to think of them as like inferior and as like primitive in some way and refusal to think like like it's question of like oh how'd you learn to fix all this by rote and they're like fuck off by rote we like learn to fix it by learning how to yeah. fix it like yeah. how like what do you think we are like we're humans just as much as you are yeah like if just because we like, never set a foot on old earth like yeah right exactly and i think that you know like you know when we talk about different levels of consciousness i think this is actually a, a really easy you know it's really easy to fall into these you know kind of like western enlightenment you know eugenetic patterns of like oh well like civilization is up here and we're more conscious than like primitive people down here even if those aren't the exact words you're using like there's it's really easy to kind of fall into those patterns and like it's important like not to and to remember that like well all humans are smart and think Everyone thinks, (laughs) you know, like don't assume that because like some civilization doesn't have writing in the way that we think about it, that they don't think or they aren't smart or they don't have history or like whatever, you know, or that they're not a civilization, that they're not a society that's really complex. And that is very that is totally a good analog to, I think, a debate about consciousness. It's the same kind of humility you require the same kind of humility to do that, that you need to remember that you, you know, we don't really know. Consciousness is a, is a word that, that refers to a thing that nobody understands. And, um, yeah. And that's actually, you know, uh, another reason why I really like, it's, it's a, a, a reason why I, I, I think the right take on these debates is to have the kind of empathy and good values, you know, that this book has. Mm. And so, you know, whether whatever position you come down on, you, you, you know, behind that is a sense that um, we can, in fact, 
maybe through technological assistance, you know, but nonetheless, we can um, find ways to empathize with anything. Like it, it's mm. actually a completely kind of revolutionary idea um, right. that I don't recall from another book like this. Um, the, you know, there's a little <laughs> I bit. Mean, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think there's a lot of like religious ideas in this vein that are yeah, you know, yeah, specifically yeah. like the, the Bodhisattva, like Buddhist construct and everything. Sure. But yeah, that's yes. true. That's true. Um, I don't know of another science fiction book about colonizing another planet that does it, but right. I, I hope right. there are I some that's... that I don't just don't know about. But right. um, certainly well, and that's actually, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Well, no, no, it's just like certainly elsewhere in human culture. It's a thing. And I think this like radical empathy, you know, and being willing to use technological assistance to achieve an empathic goal, you know, right. It, it's, it's, it's radical because it, actually offers like 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 the best science fiction can it offers a way to think through problems that's just different mm-hmm. you know there's mm-hmm. a very like the the like prisoner's dilemma when encountering alien species is like to some people an impossible problem um but they just, just like you know the book frames it as a technological problem with a technological solution more or less right yeah i <sighs> You know, it is one of the things I struggled with this book a little bit was the, you know, that it's a book about colonization written in like the late 20 teens that like doesn't actually deal with like colonialism at all. And I think like in certain ways, that's an element of it being like, okay, this is just not the question that I'm actually like asking here. And I think that's fine to say like, well, these aren't the questions I'm really like focused on. So like, just not going to deal with it. I you know, not against that as a project generally, but it is kind of this interesting thing of like, you know, we see a lot of different sort of like clashes of actually different types of civilizations, right? Of like the spiders and the ants and the, you know, humans and the spiders and like Kern and the humans and all these sort of like, you know, these things that are like literally very different from each other. Um, And it is sort of this, you know, this this future liberals want this like boundless optimism that like through technology we can solve those problems is one that I sometimes do wonder about. Like I sometimes wonder about that ideology as like, Oh, well, you know, the problem with, you know, with this is just that like, we're thinking about it wrong or like we're doing, there is a way to solve these problems. That's like good and neat. I don't, I don't know. I don't have like a fully formed thought here so much as like, it was a yeah. thing that at points in the novel was like, like I sometimes wonder about that. Like I sometimes wonder about this idea that like, Oh really what we need is empathy because I think that that can get to dangerous places. Yeah. I think like it's dangerous to empathize with the wrong people, uh, particularly it's dangerous to sympathize with the wrong people yeah. and to try to like see their points of view. There are like toxic points of view that, you should not attempt to become sympathetic with. Um, And so I, you know, that, that is this one thing of like, you know, it's, it's all well and good to have these like, you know, and this is not a knock on the story at all. I really enjoyed this book. Um, And I, and I sometimes like to point out these things because it makes me think, and I'm glad this book makes me think about it. Not because it's like problematic. Thus it must be bad kind of thing. 
Um, but it is this sense of like, you know, that there are these kind of like technocratic solutions to the problem of colonialism. Like, I don't know about that. Like, I don't know if I actually <laughs> believe that at the yeah. end of the day. And that's kind of what's presented that, right? Like there's yes. a way in which you could interpret the story as like, oh, well, if the, you know, the native Americans had just like had access to these empathy viruses, then like they wouldn't have been wiped out. And it's like, I don't know how I feel about that as a moral to right. a story. It's, it's, it's very weird, right? Because on the one hand, if they did, you know, as described in this book, then like, yeah, I guess that would have worked out because as described in this book, it's a sort of all powerful sort of super mm-hmm. hand wavy ultimate technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the exact, you know, thing that is never explained and that is the black box that drives the story is the thing that, you know, wins in the end. Right. So it's weird. It's weird to kind of ascribe so much optimism to a piece of technology that is basically magic that is no way explained and like doesn't necessarily right. have any relationship with reality. But I, what I like about it is, um, is not actually the technology. I mean, you know, in, 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 in real life, I am not so optimistic about technology per se, but I think, you know, like more broadly at a higher level, you know, when, when technology can be taken to refer to cultural technology and, and memes, um, you know, when we think about, um, so that is the way in which I mean technology in this yeah. case is not as like physical technology, but even just like the idea that like empathy as a meme is strong enough to like solve colonialism is like, I don't know how I feel about that moral. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. I, to me, it didn't quite go that way. To me, the way I read this book is that like the uh, colonizers lost decisively and were defeated. Right. Okay. That, right. That's that actually how I read what happened in the story. And so it didn't feel as weird to me. Like to me, it was mm-hmm. like, oh, they, these humans were going to commit genocide. They were going to do that, but they were yeah. defeated. And then, and then there, the, the spiders after defeating them were merciful. That's basically how I read, right. how I read okay. what happened. And, and so, you know, that didn't bother me as much from that perspective because it's sort of like, well, yes, if native Americans had been able to simply defeat Europeans, but were then merciful. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like, I don't know how that could have happened, but it, right. it's it's well, a nice fable, you know? I mean, it, it might have had our own, like, biological weapons not been so strong, as yeah. accidental as they were. Yeah. But so, but so, so the, the technology aspect is, is to me sort of like, in a way, it's, you know, it's, it is complicated because it's like, on the one hand, it's very easy to be Pollyannish about solving a problem with magical unknown technology, right? Like it's like, Mm -hmm. well, it's it's like another way of not actually thinking of a solution, but on (laughs) the other hand, it's pretty easy. (laughs) Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, there's a kind of a, a willingness to actually take the problem seriously that goes along with a Mm -hmm. willingness to take problems seriously as things that could be solved or it could be tractable in some sense that Mm -hmm. I think is very valuable. Um, it's you have to walk a fine line as with so many difficult moral issues you know it's never going to be the case that there's a piece of advice that i can describe easily in one sentence uh right. relating to technology and like moral problem solving that if you follow it will simply you know right. ensure success in the long run 
Right. But, and I think in a lot of ways, what I'm doing is less saying that like, oh, I think the book is bad for this reason or like the book is trying to do this and more being like, I think that's an easy, like facile response to the book. Yeah. And I would like challenge anyone who reads it to like not fall into that trap of like, oh, yeah. yeah, of course, these problems are like easily solved with like, you know, you just need to like think about other people. And it's like, well, no, it's not that easy. Mm hmm. And like the questions that the book's asking is, you know, I mean, like it's a book, so it gets wrapped up in the end. But like, I don't know if like these questions do get wrapped up in, in the end because there is no end. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, one tiny thing that I liked about this book that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that their arc ship is named Gilgamesh. And what they're trying to do is bring their civilization back to life, just like Gilgamesh wants to bring Enkidu back to life. But they can't because that's not allowed. And so actually they end up just growing just like Gilgamesh. I haven't read Gilgamesh, so <laughs> I appreciate though. Like I greatly appreciate that actually had significance. <laughs> Thank you for telling me what the significance was. <laughs> that's cool. Actually, no, I, I have, I, I haven't read Gilgamesh. So I, I felt like I was probably missing something while reading it and just, you know, accepted my ignorance. <laughs> I didn't think anything of it until the end. Oh, Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is like, you know, just talking, I think I said this before, but like in terms of planting and payoff, there's a lot of stuff that is sort of like planted early. And then like once it's paid off, you're like, oh, right, right. Oh, yeah, I could have gotten that. Dude's but a good like, writer. Yeah, he really is. It's a really like it's a good book, you know, smart way of like using things early on to like solve problems Absolutely. like late in the plot. And I, and I, love, and I love also like, honestly, this is like. Like you were saying, it, it is a lot like, um, you know, whatchamacallit, a novel created out of short stories. But um, in a way, it's almost more like the reverse of that because it is clearly a novel. It fits together from the beginning. Oh, yeah. And it was intended to be a novel always. But it could easily be like deconstructed into individual stories that, that do, in, in many cases, stand alone. Right. Yeah. I mean, in that way, it's kind of like a picaresque in that like it's yeah. it's like ep it's episodic. Right. And, yeah. and this is where the like TV show thing like keeps coming back to me of like it feel it has this feeling of like, you yeah. know, there are episodes that build to like a greater mm -hmm. whole. And there are like, you know, episodes that build to like plot arcs that build to like the meta plot arc. Yeah, that I absolutely I, I, I constantly find it hilarious to try to imagine like Hollywood doing <laughs> spider civilization. I, I they will never do it. And that's what's so funny to me, because it's like just like oh. imagining these gross spiders like I like wonder I saving wonder if, like, each other a or like tone fighting that they could for take. glory, you know, like I mean, like they're doing this. Have you seen these, Um, you know, uh, uh, the trailer for the, 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 I'm putting it in quotes, like live action in quotes, um, Lion King. I oh mean, it's God. actually like a CGI animated, I like photorealistic saw Lion that King. it exists and I really don't care. <laughs> well, okay, fine. I don't either. I'm not going to watch it. I haven't watched any of these kind of like modern Disney, like, you know, photorealistic CGI reboots, but I saw a part of Beauty and the Beast and it sucked compared to the cartoon. So that's okay, my yeah. Opinion. Again, I know I've never seen the cartoon, never gonna see either of them. I like don't Disney really movies. give a shit. Um I do too. I of what I've seen. I'm just I'm not I'm not like a Disney fan. The point for me though is this like, you know, I saw the trailer for the thing because people were talking about it and I was kind of interested in it. And like, you know, a lot of people were talking about it in this terms of like, oh, there's like no heart and soul that the original animation has. It's like we tried to go so photorealistic that we like lost whatever. And like, you know, you say like, oh, Hollywood will never do this. But I kind of do think of like, you know, 
the jungle book and you know these john favreau in particular uh, you know these two like animal centric disney reboot whatever things yeah, I'm like, but they're mammals i don't dude. know they're mammals they're, yeah but it's you a know, big difference like uh 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 what's his name um the 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 snake in the jungle book yeah, but is he's creepy and the point of him is that he's creepy right but they try to imagine a movie that was all snakes creepy too try to imagine a movie that was all snakes would they I mean, do it it's time to get these motherfucking snakes off this motherfucking yeah, they're the plane <laughs> they're the villain it's a horror movie it's not a snake society right. like struggling well, that's, to that's advance I, itself i mean and it's that's you know again i i i i i i i wonder about the ability of you know maybe not hollywood but of you know some some other form of like visual entertainment to like lean fully into the horror elements and like have that you know the fact that it's like horror visuals on screen but like a tender story being told through those visuals as like yeah. actually being interesting like i think there's something really interesting there and i do think Look, that i know, would watch it i'm not saying i wouldn't watch it I would right. I would be like freaked out the whole time, but I would watch it. <laughs> but I just don't think. I mean, it's just, yeah. I don't know. I I, I never I say never with this kind of stuff at like this point in time. But you know, I don't think they need to do it. I think the book actually like works really well. As I honestly think the harder thing about adapting this book is that like it is told over such a long period of time and its structure isn't one that fits into a like typical three or even five act movie structure. Like it just doesn't like there are a mm-hmm. bunch of different five act stories told. Yeah. Like that's why it would five be stories. No, it would clearly be a right. TV show. So I have right. a question for you. I don't know if you feel like, yeah, answering yeah, this. yeah. No, please. How would you set up the last arc ship of humanity? Oh, Governance wise. Yeah governance wise this is this is tough um i mean like or like personnel or like personnel wise like who would be key crew would they have a key crew like how would it work Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's really hard i you know i'm gonna answer with a (laughs) non-answer um but i do (laughs) i do feel that the you know i i said earlier like it's a hard problem partially because you only do it one time it's not a problem that you can like you know oh well that didn't work so this is what we're gonna have to do and so i think that you know what's presented in the book is this like very hierarchical top down and like specifically top down based on like expertise like the more expertise you have in a certain area the like higher up you are in that area um and it, it actually it kind of reminded me of um of like university where right like the more you've published then the like better a department head you are, even though at like publishing good scientific literature and like being good at managing a bunch of instructors are like really fucking different skill sets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to go back to our conversation we had with Ellie about like, you know, skill sets in the military and, and that kind of thing where like, okay, the, to be a good statistician or a good strategist, uh, strategist or a good grunt or a good like leader of small groups. Like these are all actually very different skills that like sometimes build on each other and sometimes don't like you can be good at both of them, but there's no like reason you will be necessarily. Um, so, you know, I think from taking that perspective, the way I would probably think about it is being more worried about the management structures and the rules of the game than I would be about the specific people playing the game. Again, to kind of go back to the game language that we used in the, the nine Fox gambit post read, um, 
where like, you know, I do, I'm a big believer. I've, you know, worked at a lot of different companies. I've done some management consulting. I've done some of this kind of like work that actually asks these questions of like, how do you set up teams to achieve specific goals? And my work has never been as intense as like asking that question in a military context. It's definitely never been as intense as asking that question in, you know, like a, a, the survival of the human race content. There's never been any like life and death kind of like element to it. Um, but like my answer usually does tend to be, well, you know, you want good decision-making processes and you want processes where like everyone involved in the decision feels heard. And I think that for instance, the mutiny, like that was one of the problems with the mutiny of like, they made decisions without letting the people who were actually affected by those decisions, like have a say and feel heard. And like that element of like getting information from people on the ground. It's actually one thing that the book just kind of like, you know, like that whole colony just dies. And even when they come back, they don't come back to figure out what happened to the like 500 members of the human race they left behind. They're like, well, they're dead time to fucking take this planet back. Well, I mean, they, they, don't have any choice do they <laughs> right well you know i mean that's 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 the quit they don't by have that any choice point, given what don't. their choices are right right sure by, by that, that point, point they, they don't. don't um but you know i think that you know they don't have any choice by that point because earlier they made yes. bad choices because they yes. didn't have a very good decision making structure because they expected one person to be that decision-making structure. And I think there's a lot of like these memes in like just the world about how like, Oh, in times of great stress, what you really want is like not rule by committee and instead one person making decisions. And like, there can be an element of truth to that, that like one person actually making the final decision is helpful, but you can also have like decisions by committee that have a similar sense of fastness. You can like build structures for decision-making where like you vote and whatever the vote says, like is what you do. You know, you can build these other kind of structures that have the same like speed and agility. They're maybe harder to build, but they also might be more robust in certain ways. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of stuff, you know, it's really hard for me to say, well, I would do X and Y and Z. Um, obviously like on, you know, the humans final outposts, you need a bunch of experts. You need a lot of people who are like really talented and good at what they're doing. Um, I would probably have more historians on my like human final human ship than they do. <laughs> Having like two or three doesn't seem like enough to me, given that like part of what you want to save is just not the individuals and the human stock and the DNA, but also mm -hmm. like the whole cultural heritage of earth. Mm -hmm. Like that seems really important to me. I value that. I would like want to, you know, lots of different types of people on board because, you know, both, you know, diverse groups make better decisions. There's a lot of like scientific research on that. Um, but also just like the whole point is to save everything and to save as much of it as you can. Um, one interesting thing is, you know, it's an arc with no animals. Mm -hmm. The Gilgamesh is like, it's actually called out at one point in the book that they don't really have any other animals with them. Yeah. And it's like, nah, that's silly, <laughs> that seems, right? you know, that seems very short sighted. Yeah. At the very least, you know, keep them, asleep or something i mean you don't have to mm -hmm. keep them awake based mm -hmm. on the technology that they supposedly have right do you have any thoughts yourself on the you know how you would set up the the final human generation ship or even like in this case it's not generation ship per se but you know what i mean yeah i mean honestly i think it's a it's this is like the classic political problem it's a very hard problem there's no mm -hmm. one answer i i don't think i mean 
at a certain level, it depends on what the people are willing to sign up for. Um, I'm a believer that political structures um, are not independent of the culture that they're in. You know, you need to mm-hmm. you need to have a structure that people agree to. I th- totally, on some totally. level, you know, and um, you can't just parachute in a structure out of nowhere, although you can try to work to create something. It's different also because it's such an artificial situation. Um, it's not, um, th- there's so many arbitrary decisions that they can make about who is awake for how long. And um, yeah. they can decide as they do at some point that we're going to sort of go from everybody being asleep to a more like, having way more people awake and having children mode. And that necessitates different structures politically to just, just right. to manage it. Um, I mean, we talked about some of the like biases and stuff that creates too, like yeah. between those two groups, you immediately like create us's and them's for both groups. Yeah. I think and it's kind of cool that he shows like two different ways of doing that. Like one is the cult of personality and the yeah. other is, you know, the sort of like, well, more rule based thing of like, we have these values. We were raised with these values. Like we're here for these values as opposed to like for this person. Yeah. Vision. And, and we're given to understand that Lane sort of developed a constitutional order for them too. Right. Right. Um, and it's obviously, it's not the point of the book to dig into the specifics yeah. of that, but just this idea that like, Oh, there are different ways that you could do that. And like, you know, mm-hmm. Holston's fear of like, they're going to eat me when he wakes up is, you know, one based on his sure based on his personal experience with that, but also one that's, yeah. you know, it's like, well, that's only one kind of way to do this. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think, um, it's weird because when they start out the, I think the the general idea is that there are going to be very few people awake. And so, they need a mm. command structure that makes sense for 20 people or 50 right. people. Right. Not a command structure that would make sense for the 100,000 or 500,000 or however many there are total or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're, uh, the implication to me at least was that this is, a, this is a, uh, an organization of people that's designed to shift as different numbers of them come online. Um, and I don't know how that shifting was supposed to work. It's not really widely discussed, but there's a whole no. lot of juicy sort of problems there. Um, mm. Yeah, the feeling I got was that like, oh, you have these key crew members who are like the best at what they do and they spin up their own teams as necessary and they get to manage those teams because they're yeah. the best at what they do, which is like, yeah, I don't know how well that works generally. <laughs> I don't know. But, it, but then again, if you're only going to have eight people awake, you want the best of each one. Oh, for sure. Right, right. And so it's... Or, well, you know, there's... I don't know about that. Actually, I'm going to push back on that because there is a lot of, you know, I mean, there's a lot of like research that goes into like, how do groups of people make good decisions? And like the answer is actually usually not that you want the like best at doing things on their own altogether to make decisions together. Ah, right. Like, well, of course, I think the best at, you know, is a silly thing. It's not, this is not a basketball team. You don't want the best point guard for the point guard position and the best say, you know, no, it's not like that. You want the, you want the best team. You want the best Mm -hmm. eight people as a collective of eight. Um, Right. And like when thinking about building teams, one of the things you have to think about is both like how competent is each person at their role, but also like 
how do those individual human beings as individual human beings have relationships with each other? And also how does like that group, like what does the group composition look like? Because there's a lot of stuff we know about the fact that like group composition, just like leaving those other two things aside, like it's important, right? Like having like teams of mixed gender is important. Like a team of mixed gender will do a lot better yes. than a team of all men. Indeed. And also better than a team of all women, although like less as better. Um, and like this kind of stuff is like important, like you need to think about it. And this isn't just like a, you know, like future liberals want diversity kind of thing. It's also like when you're thinking about these kind of high stake decision making processes, you want diverse people on teams because diverse teams make better decisions. Um, One of the things that it reminded me of, weirdly enough, was like an open source project. Um, yeah, it's not that weird because there's a huge number of open source projects in the world and they have a wide variety of different governance structures and their governance structures change. And some of the projects like die and some of them don't die and some of them the leadership changes and they have a new sort of constitutional order, quote unquote, that takes over. And and it's a really interesting, you know, if you're a writer, it's an, an interesting thing to pay attention to for inspiration would be that. But I was yeah. reminded of it in the context of this book because um because it's sort of designed to scale like yeah. the, the the system that they have such as it is is a system that's like inherently designed to like change as it scales and the scaling is like part of it and that's like a mm. ma major part of it and it scales both up and down um mm -hmm. and uh and also like sideways in terms of yeah. like length of time that people are awake for right which is kind of interesting and there is really truly no there's no there isn't actually a constitutional order like as soon right. as they're in space like whatever pretense of there being some kind of very rigid hierarchy is out the window and they listen to Guyan because because he's the strong personality basically right. and because they don't have well, anyone else to listen to but then they they do listen to other people at, at like right. they don't well really and also he, he is politically talented i mean they do make yeah. that point over and over again that like they also listen to him because he's really good at getting people to listen to him and he's really good at thinking planning. ahead about what yeah. his opponents will do and outsmarting them like he's actually those are talents that a person can have yeah but it just reminds me of you know the charismatic founder of the project Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's the like Linus troll vads. Yeah, and the you know trolls, yeah. Jimmy yeah. Wales. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, you know, I mean, as with so many things, like sometimes it splinters, you know, mm -hmm. and the 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 software. Well, is and the like of, kind of like toxic type of like cultures that a cult of personality can breed, even yeah. when that's not the goal. Like you know, yeah. when you have just this goal of like, oh, everyone needs to be the best. It's like, well, that develops a lot of competition and that develops a lot of jockeying for who is best and a lot of like, you know, at a certain point, like sabotaging other people, like for the like detriment of the group, but the like good of yourself, the detriment of the project, but the good of yourself, you know, like that's the kind of stuff that can build up in that sort of like meritocratic air quotes environment. Yeah. And then of course, you know, somebody who sucks as a leader can still have a good idea mm -hmm. that the, the community in general follows, even though they ditch the guy. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is what happens with Gwyn. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, is there anything else that we should mention that we haven't we haven't hit upon? We've hit on all, most of my big things, so yeah. I had to yell about octopuses and the Baldwin yeah. effect. Octopuses are so cool. So are spiders. Spiders are Just also saying. cool. Just saying. I do like spiders. All right. I think we're good. Okay. I'm good. 
Cool. Well, um, this is fun. Highly recommended this book. Yeah. Um, so yeah, very, very recommended. I, you know, we took a bit of a chance on this one since neither of us had read it before and that chance paid off. Next month, we will be reading Rupetta by N.A. Solway, which is a very different kind of book. Although strangely, like, you know, like I said, I've already recorded the pre-read for that episode and we hit on some of the same themes in a way that I did not expect to. Um, So I'm I'm kind of looking forward from like moving into from this book into that book. And um, the pre-read episode I've already recorded, we have a guest, um, Charlotte Geeter, who is a... um, actually works in like the publishing poet the poetry publishing world um picked this book matt wasn't on the pre-read um unclear if he'll be on the post-read at this point but unclear you know, unclear uh, need, need some real life time which i totally understand um yeah and then we may or may not have any bonus episodes in december i don't i don't want to like say yet just because i i don't know it's the holidays and everything so we have to juggle our like real life uh situations but we will have a book December. Um, it's great. It's going to be really cool. It's a really fun sort of like historical feminist novel about like consciousness and machines as well, which is kind of interesting. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you know, thanks as always to all of you, our listeners. Um, if you want to chat with us about this book, about any of our other books, recommend books to us, you know, say whatever. Uh, it's at Spectology Pod on Twitter. Uh, it is spectologypod at gmail.com and I monitor both those accounts so I'll get it and reply as soon as I see it um, and you know thanks to WJ for doing our music which you're hearing right now and for uh, our artwork which was done by Noah Bradley you can find him at noahbradley.com um, yeah I think that's that's all the off the top of my head at least the like logistics logistics at the end here um, yeah, so we, we, will, we will see you back uh, a week from now for Rupetta. Peace out. Bye, everyone.